Hi, this is John Leahy, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest episode of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. have a great show planned for you today. Joining me will be the CEO of the Sportscasters Talent Agency of America, based out of San Diego, California, John Chelesnik. We had a great, great talk about sports broadcasting. Anybody who's uh, in the business of play-by-play, I think will really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. And we have a little bonus for you in today's episode. You're going to hear John talk about how he utilized the help of Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn uh, to propose to his wife. Well, you're going to hear the exact audio of that conversation that John references in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. And please feel free to join us next week for another episode. So without any further ado, here's STAA's John Chelesnik. everyone, welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. John Leahy with you, and we hope you enjoyed uh, the past week. Uh, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Those of you who did, hope you enjoyed uh, your St. Patrick's Day and uh, tried to make it a little more manageable for folks by playing a couple of tunes on the podcast last week. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, today, we're going to get into uh, some more talk on sports broadcasting. Uh, my guest on the show today is a gentleman who is uh, a longtime friend and business associate. He runs the premier uh, sportscasting uh, broadcasting website on the internet today. He's the CEO of the Sportscasters Talent Agency of America. His name is John Chelesnik. We have a lot to get to today. John, you're joining us from San Diego, California. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I'm excited, John. As you said, we're longtime friends in this business, so I'm flattered to uh, to be on your podcast, and congratulations on its success, too. Well, thanks so much, John. And I, I thought we just might start by uh, talking about STAA and maybe getting a little uh, background uh, of what the agency is and the overview and, and how it all kind of got started for you. Well, in the summer of 2003, I was at the height of my career, uh, and I, I hesitate, I think it was 03, but I was in my fourth year hosting on ESPN Radio Network, and I was doing television play-by-play and sideline reporting for a company called the Football Network. They were on air all football the time before even NFL Network. Well, six months later, I lost my job at ESPN Radio, and the Football Network ran out of money. So uh, it was out of desperation and the fact that sports casting is the only thing I know that I founded you know, a business to help sports broadcasters with their careers. And really, John, uh, at least in the first many years, it was built upon 
helping others prevent the mistakes that I made, you know, help prevent them from making those, those same mistakes. So it was based on my own failures rather than any special knowledge that I had. Well, John, you have a, a long history in terms of uh, doing broadcasting. And uh, I know you worked at ESPN for a while. You also worked for the San Diego Chargers, but it all really started in Kansas for you, didn't it? Yes, uh, you're well-researched. I respect that. McPherson, Kansas, a town of 12,000 people in the middle part of the state. And I had I was the news and sports director. I had zero interest in doing the news, but it's like eating your vegetables so you can have dessert. Uh, so I did the news, but then got to do a ton of high school and small college play-by-play and host sports talk shows and do live remotes interviewing coaches and so forth. And it set the foundation for the rest of my career. Outstanding. And uh, so you developed STAA. And uh, if people go to the website now, they're going to be astounded at the, at the at the amount of information on that website, staatalent.com. And uh, the first thing that jumps out at you, John, is the job postings. And you have them so well organized, grouped by uh, sport, radio, and TV. And, uh, you know, talk about how, uh, how that's come about for you. Well, uh, the website in general, the content on the site is just a collection of different content that I've created over the years for individuals or for STAA members. Uh, and it's kind of think of the website as sort of a library where all the content can be organized for, you know, everybody to have access to, uh, the job board has been there since day one. Uh, and it's a great way to help people have a one-stop shop where they can find where the openings are in the sports broadcasting industry. And it's so much more than just that, John. I mean, one of the things that I always like to uh, visit on your site are the sportscasting resources, uh, things that help broadcasters be better at what they do. You know, you have everything from books to career advice, uh, types of equipment to buy. Uh, if you want an internet stream, there's information about that, tips on play-by-play, podcasting, talk shows. And uh, I've used it many times, and I love the section on books because, as you know, John, we've talked about this. I'm an avid reader. And so that's something you and I have in common. But boy, what a wonderful area that is. Well, thank you. And I'm flattered that that you use it. A lot of times, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but I don't always hear from people who have been able to take advantage of the free resources on the site. So uh, it makes me happy to hear you say that you do. And I give you credit, because you're right, you and I are both avid readers. But one of my favorite books is one that you encouraged me to read How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, which is an all-time classic. So I have you to thank for that. I got to tell you, John, I went to a, a bookstore recently. They have the old copies of vintage books, and I bought the first ever book that, jo- that Dale Carnegie wrote with the original text. And there's stuff in that original book that isn't in the subsequent version. So, uh, man, I'll tell you, you, you learn something every time you read. And, and I love that. And we had a guest on a few weeks ago that I know you know this guy, Jesse Goldberg Strassler, who wrote uh, a couple of great books about varying your vocabulary with play-by-play, uh, the, the baseball thesaurus and the football thesaurus. Jesse and I worked together uh, for several years, and boy, what a great, great book that is. Oh, uh, they're both. Both his baseball and football books are, they really are must-haves for 
broadcasters who are doing play-by-play -play for those two sports because not only do you, uh, does it help you vary your vocabulary, but each of those books includes little tidbits and anecdotes and factoids that are going to be of interest to your audience and you can sprinkle them you know, throughout your broadcast over the course of the entire season. Just fabulous resources. I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, you know, this when you talk about baseball play-by-play, -play, man, there's some great, great books out there. You talked about the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. They have a baseball <laughs> edition, and they have uh, stories of legends and lore. I have all of those on my on my bookshelf. And we talk about baseball play-by-play, -play, John. It's so important to be a great storyteller, and uh, there's so many good resources to help you do that. Yeah, it's the most difficult difficult sport to call because it's so slow and there's so much time to fill. For other sports that have fast-paced action, what you need to say is handed to you on the field or the court or the ice. Not so much in baseball. Some of it is, of course, because you do have to describe the action, but it's a lot harder to fill those downtimes, which makes it a great storyteller's medium. Vin Scully, the legendary Dodgers broadcaster, is an outstanding example of being well-read and well-rounded and knowing so much more than just baseball. And then he can deftly, or did, uh, share some of this knowledge that he's picked up from anything from current events to great playwrights throughout history. And he'll find, <laughs> he's got a great ability to do this, perfect places throughout his broadcast over the course of the season to insert these things where they fit. But it goes back to what you just said, being a great storyteller. And part of that is rooted in being well-read and knowing a little bit about a lot of things. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about play-by-play -play mechanics a little later, but you know, you, you're absolutely right. I think you have to draw on uh, what's going on in the world. You have to be able to pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. And I found doing baseball, it's important to also draw on your own experiences, you know, things that, that you know that you're well-versed in, like music, for example, uh, things like that. And Joe Castiglione, who does the Red Sox games, he's a master at that, talking about things that are going on in the world around you. Because in baseball, John, it's what you say between the pitches that's most important. And it's the exact same thing if you are a sports talk show host. Share personal stories, whether you're doing play-by-play -play for the Red Sox or you're hosting a show on WEEI in Boston, your listeners think you have the coolest job. So take them behind the curtain sometimes, behind the scenes, and let them know what it's like. You know, what's it like to be in the locker room when the Red Sox clinch the pennant and there's a champagne celebration taking place? Or what's it like to be just outside the locker room before the media is allowed in and hear Bill Belichick screaming at his team after one of their rare losses. Uh, <laughs> except for last year. Last right, year. Yeah, but I'm going over the course of his entire career. They're still rare over the course of 21 years or whatever. But uh, anyway, you're, you're exactly right. Share those personal experiences and let your listener behind the scenes, let them know what it's like to be the voice of a, of a baseball team uh, and some of the cool stuff that comes with it. 
Well, you know, I think one of the coolest developments that has come along is the ability like Facebook Live. You can go on and stream yourself doing an inning and and, and stream that out to your, your Facebook uh, friends. So uh, I've done that a few times with the Lowell Spinners, and I got a lot of uh, positive feedback from that. So that's another cool feature. It's amazing how many people are entertained by watching a broadcaster sit there and talk. And I understand the entertainment value of it initially it's curiosity how is a broadcast put together how's it produced what's the equipment what's the setup look like how often does he look at the at his notes or a computer monitor but after you've seen all of that it's still just kind of interesting to watch somebody work who is very good at their job Absolutely. Well, we'll get back to that a little bit later, John, but I just wanted to go back to STAA for a minute. Um, You've really developed the uh, reputation of really giving back to the profession. And one of the ways you do that is through the Jim Nance Award by, uh, you know, recognizing up and coming uh, collegiate broadcasters. So how did that award kind of come about and, and, and how does that work every year? It came about because I've always been a fan of national rankings for college football and basketball. And I thought, boy, that'd be kind of cool to have something like that for collegiate broadcasters and sportscasters. And I thought of that because I'd already started STAA. So it was already my industry and top of mind. Uh, and actually the, the All-America program of which the Jim Nance Award is part of initially was designed with rankings and they would change periodically. But then I thought, you know what, that's going to be a heck of a burden to try to follow all these sportscasters and have them send me demos and what. But anyway, it evolved. That's where it came from, was just to have a ranking like they have for the Heisman Trophy. Who are the best players in the country? Who are the best teams in the country? Who are the best collegiate sportscasters? And I figured that at the same time, it would be an incentive for collegiate sportscasters to strive to achieve to be their best but it would also let collegiate sportscasters know just how good they can be when they see what their peers are doing around the country. For example, when I was at Kansas State, the Princeton of the Plains, I was a senior. I thought, hey, I'm a pretty good sportscaster. Well, when I listen to some of the top collegiate sportscasters today, they run circles around where I was. Had I had that comparison available to me as a senior or as a student, I would have realized how much harder I needed to work and the areas where I needed to improve would have been more noticeable to me. So the Jim Nance Award and the All-America program hopefully accomplishes all of those things for today's college students. Now, how did the award become named? Uh, did, did you uh, talk to Jim Nance about it? Was it just, a, hey, I'm going to name it after Jim? And what's the nomination process like? Well, the, the naming of the award, I've, I've really rarely been asked that, and it's kind of neat. Um, I wanted to have you know a big name sportscaster's name on it. And I remember I reached out to the agent of one sportscaster, very famous, he's now deceased, and said, hey, yeah, I'd be interested in putting his name on this award. And the agent said, how much are you going to pay us? And I thought, you know what? I don't know if just the agent was the schmuck or if maybe the broadcaster was also a schmuck. And that's where this question was coming from. So 
I'll try to keep this short, even though it sounds like I'm about to start meandering. Um, we have time, I, so go ahead. Well, thank you. Um, so I realized this is going to be kind of tough to get somebody of renown to lend their name to this award that doesn't yet exist and to do it with a company, STAA, and an individual, myself, that were brand new, had no track record for credibility or anything else. Well, I was considering some other sportscasters, and then I read Jim's book, Always By My Side, about his relationship with his dad and how close they were. Well, my dad and I are very close, and thank goodness I still have my father. Uh, and that book resonated with me. Uh, deeply. After reading it, actually during the course of reading, I thought, you know what, I would love for this award to be named after Jim. So I reached out to his people and his agent wisely said, we'll try this for a year. We'll try it for this, you know, for this first year and see how it goes. Well, I never heard from his agent again, because apparently they were pleased with how it went the first year. And, uh, you know, with, with the year since, because his name's always been the only one on the award. And uh, I sure hope it's always going to be that way. And uh, talk a little, about, a little bit about the nomination process, John. How does a broadcaster become nominated to win the award? Yeah, they don't even have to be nominated. Any, any collegiate sportscaster can apply. Uh, oh. And all applicants will be reviewed equally, regardless of where they go to school. And, you know, uh, a lot of sportscasters have questions about, you know, how do I build a demo? What do I put on my resume? How do I approach writing a cover letter that will impress? And that's something that I know you've stressed over and over again. It's something you give a lot of emphasis to on the SDAA site. Yeah, there's five variables in the sports broadcasting job market that are within your control. Demo, resume, cover letter, presentation, follow-up, like, like you just outlined. If you aren't hearing back from employers, I guarantee you, assuming you have the, the required skill and experience for the job, guarantee you're not, you're dropping the ball in one of those five areas. Uh, they are so important, yet I find a lot of sportscasters of all ages take shortcuts or they think they already know how to address each of those five areas until they continue to hear crickets. There are sportscasters who finish very high in our annual All-America rankings that kind of struggle in the job market. Well, it's not because of their ability, so you better start paying attention to these other five things because if they're struggling in the job market as a result of not addressing the five variables, then any of us can. You know, I've heard some people ask me this question, and I know you've come across this question as well. When you're looking at a sportscasting ad and you see the words, no phone calls, please. How does a sportscaster deal with that? <laughs> I love a great question, John. There's a couple ways. There was a program director. Uh, used to be the program director at The Score in Chicago many years ago. He said when he was a job applicant, he would apply anyway. Nobody else was. So he was distinguishing himself by applying, setting himself apart. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is if I don't, 
you know, some employers will say, if you don't follow instructions in the application process, I can't trust you're going to follow my instructions if I hire you. So my rule of thumb is pay attention to how no calls, please is written. Oh, great stuff. If it's written with standard capitalization and a period, call anyway. If it's written with an exclamation point, think about it. And if you happen to know that employer personally or you know his reputation, then use that to evaluate whether you call or not. If it's in all caps with an exclamation point, don't call. And every once in a while, an employer will put in the position description, no calls, please. If anybody who calls will be eliminated from consideration, then of course you don't take the chance. But there's so many other ways to follow up an application besides a telephone call. So you can still have success even if you choose not to call. We're talking to John Chelesnick. He's the CEO of uh, Sportscasters Talent Agency of America. You can find it at staatalent.com. John, there's another uh, interesting aspect of sportscasting that I wanted to get your opinion on, and it's about uh, making a, a good first impression. There are people who have uh, done different things to try to make a good impression on an employer, like physically showing up to drop off demos and, and resumes or whatnot. There's been some differing opinions about how effective that might be. I'll give you an example. I was on a road trip with Merrimack once. We were in uh, uh, Wisconsin, and I rented a car when we were in Wisconsin. I drove down to Chicago, and I dropped off a uh, resume and demo uh, with this team that has since long gone out of business. Uh, I never actually heard back from them. I've heard about... Uh, you know, different ways of doing that. I've heard that some positive, some negative. Do you think it's a good idea uh, to do th things like that and try to stand out and make a first impression? If you can find out a little bit about that employer's personality, that'll help you make that decision. I still lean towards doing that. If you can, schedule a time. Tell the employer, hey, I'm going to be in your neighborhood uh, I would say every day next week. Don't just say on Tuesday because it's easy for them to say, oh, shucks, I'm out of the office on Tuesday. I'm going to be in your neighborhood next week. Is there, do you have five minutes I can come by to introduce myself and deliver my resume? So make an appointment if you can. If you can't, here's how to still play it and not get yourself in trouble. Go to the employer, say it's a radio station, go to the radio station and say, hey, I'm John Chelesnick. Uh, I, I drove over from San Diego. I wanted to hand deliver my demo and resume to your program director, John Leahy. Uh, might I have five minutes to, to personally hand it to him? Even if they, they might say yes, but even if they say no, here's the benefit. The receptionist will say, well, Mr. Chelesnick, Mr. Leahy's busy right now, but I will give this to him. So now there's my demo and resume and she places it on his desk. 99 other applicants are sitting in his email inbox. Mine is the only one sitting on his desk. He sees it every day until he consciously puts it someplace else. That gives you an advantage. Plus the fact that, hey, he knows that I went out of my way to hand deliver it, even if I didn't get to see him. Another ploy that I've seen work in many industries, and this is where you really do have to know the employer and his personality. You don't have to know him, 
but do a little homework and know his personality, unless you don't care if it fails miserably. They'll just sit in the lobby, the applicant, even if they get there at 9 a.m. Uh, and, and the receptionist says, no, you cannot see Mr. Leahy, right? Okay, well, I'll wait. And you wait and you wait. And eventually he's got to come out and there you are. Now that can seem stalkerish, but again, if you don't mind, if you fail miserably, have at it because when it does pay off, the payoff is big. And one other thing you can do, if you go hand deliver your stuff to the employer without an appointment, bring a bouquet of flowers, give that to the receptionist, and then ask the receptionist if you can either hand deliver it for five minutes or if she'll put it on the middle of his desk uh, for you. There's some great Dale Carnegie stuff there, John. I guess yes, there is. You betcha, John. I tell you, that's a great, it's a must read book. For anybody that just wants to have a success in life, read the book, man, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> great stuff. I'd like to shift and talk a little bit about the pandemic, John, because this has been something that has turned all our lives around in so many ways. The sports industry obviously has not been immune from it. Uh, talk about how this pandemic has affected the industry from from your perception and, and how it's affected you in your way of doing business with sportscasters. The way it's impacted the industry, of course, is when sports weren't being played, there were no jobs for play-by-play -play broadcasters or the reporters who cover sports. So there were a lot of layoffs and furloughs. Some of those positions are already being brought back. Some will never be back. Some employers realized that we can just cover this stuff with the staff we already have on hand and we'll save sal salary. Uh, the more or a second permanent change is remote broadcasting. Uh, so many broadcasters now, even at the networks, are calling games off-site. You know, maybe the Padres are on the road and Don Orsillo and Mark Grant are in their studios at Petco Park calling the game. Or maybe it's an ESPN broadcast and the broadcaster and, the, and his analysts, they're both in their respective homes broadcasting. At first, John, I thought, eh, there's a chance this becomes maybe maybe a 30% chance this becomes the norm. But then something happened that scares me and makes me think the chance now is closer to 70% that this is eventually going to happen. It's going to happen gradually. But and the thing that happened was Matt Vaskurgeon taking the Angels job. Right. And I thought to myself, wow, he's going to leave MLB Network and his stuff at ESPN or whatever. No, he's keeping those positions and he's going to broadcast the Angels remotely. Mm. And I thought, Oh my goodness, when somebody of that profile at the highest levels of the industry makes it a prerequisite of accepting the job that he'd be able to do it remotely so he can keep other work. And I'm not faulting Matt whatsoever, but I think that one decision by such a high profile person will accelerate the use of play-by-play -play being broadcast remotely. And that that's a bummer because we all get into this industry because we want to get paid to attend games. 
And if that's taken from us, it's still fun, but it's not as fun. But to what extent do you think that's a temporary situation? When we do get back to normal, do you think that changes in any way with Matt? I I don't know Matt personally, so I haven't talked to him about that. But I don't. I think the reason he's – again, this is just me reading what the media has presented. I don't have any insight into this. I hope I, – I could be totally wrong. Um, and again, Matt, by all accounts, is a fabulous person. Forget his broadcasting skills. He's a fabulous guy because uh, we, we did work in San Diego together or at the same time, not together. Fabulous guy. But I think the reason he wanted to be able to do the Angels games remotely, just from what I've read, was not because of anything pandemic related, but rather so he could still continue to um, live in New York and yeah. do his stuff there. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe he'll move to LA, but then not have to travel with Angels. So whatever, so he could be in studio for his, for his TV stuff. Um, that's how I've always interpreted what I've read about him taking the Angels job. And again, not to fault him for doing it. I mean, if you could be, well, not you, but a person, if I could be the voice of a Major League Baseball team and a studio anchor for MLB Network and do, you know, Sunday Night Baseball or whatever, heck yeah, I would do some of that remotely without a doubt. But I just think it's going to accelerate the fact, you know, a lot of people doing games remotely. Well, John, I have an important question to ask you. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I think we're all dealing with to some extent. Um, how does a broadcaster deal with the frustration during these difficult times? Now, in my own case, um, the Lowell Spinners are not coming back in 2021. I don't know if they're ever coming back. I'm going to be approaching, well, I am approaching my 57th birthday. And the uncertainty really, really kills me. The, the, the notion of, hey, I may never get to call another baseball game again. Um, even in hockey with the pandemic, things have uh, been uh, turned upside down. I only got to do home games this year. Merrimack did not allow us to go out on the road this year. I don't know what's going to happen going forward. I'm feeling some sadness. I'm feeling some frustration. I know there are other broadcasters that are feeling the same way in this pandemic. What can you give in terms of advice to kind of give us a little ray of hope here, if at all? Well, a couple things come immediately to mind. Uh, one, I think my personal experience during my career is similar to what many broadcasters feel. I felt when I didn't get to the NFL, NBA, or Major League Baseball as a play-by-play -play broadcaster, that I had failed, that I had come up short, that I hadn't achieved my goals, maybe I didn't work hard, whatever. I didn't get where I wanted to go, where I dreamt of going. Later, as I got older and wiser, I realized that calling high school basketball or small college basketball was just as fun and enjoyable as the handful of major college games that I got to call. So really, my disappointment was related to the blow my ego took by not getting to the top of the industry like I'd always wanted to be. When I let go of that, then the enjoyment I got from calling play-by-play -play at the any level, I realized was the same. Those 
40 minutes or however long the game is that you're on the air doing a high school game or an NBA game, it's just as fun. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing I would suggest, and this is going to be similarly difficult for younger people to understand, your sense of worth and self should not be wrapped up in your career. Uh, the most important things in life are people, family, and friends. Uh, and it doesn't matter where we're doing our sports broadcasting, or maybe we're not even doing it anymore. If you are happy with your family and friends and you have those relationships, you'll find happiness in life. Happiness does not have to come from career. Uh, hopefully our, we do something we love and that we enjoy going to work for every day, but developing self will help a ton in dealing with the challenges of losing some, some broadcasting work. Uh, so that's, you know, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but that's what I would suggest. I believe wholeheartedly in everything I just shared, and I hope people will be open-minded to it. Uh, working on self, working on yourself will always be more important than working on your career. And if you want to, if you're still young and you want to be NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, ESPN, whatever, same thing applies. Working on yourself will always be more important than working on your career if, to realize all the, the great things that life has in store for you. Great stuff, John. I, I thought we'd pivot back now and we'll get into some fun stuff now. Play-by-play, uh, -play, mechanics of play-by-play. -play. And you've developed a wonderful resource called the, uh, the Pyramid, the SDAA Pyramid, which I actually have it on my website. And whenever I give a talk on sportscasting, I always refer to it because it really touches on all the elements. And uh, I thought we'd just quickly touch on it. The first one being time and score. So important to give the time and score. Nothing frustrates me more, John, than turning on a radio broadcast and having to wait 20 minutes for the broadcaster to tell me the score, no matter what the sport is. Yeah. Never leave your audience asking questions. And the two most prominent questions they ask, what's the time and score and who has the ball? Right. And also, you want to also uh, let people know what where you are in the game, what period you're in, what inning you're in. Um, you know, it sounds basic, John, but you'd be amazed at how many broadcasters let that go lax. And I've always been of the belief that you can't give the score often enough. If you think you've given it enough, give it some more. Even the guys at the top of the industry sometimes get lax. I've listened to Ted Leitner in San Diego called Padres, Chargers, San Diego State since I was 10 years old. Uh, Love is such a unique broadcaster. His style is so unique to him. I don't think anybody else does it like he does. So I'm a huge fan. Yet, it he'll be the first one to admit, because he says it on air. Uh, I realize I haven't given the time and score in a long time. And it does, as a listener, drive me nuts. Uh, you know, he's no longer doing Padre games, but he was through last season. I could tune into a Padre game and six, seven, eight minutes. Even coming back from a break, the most logical time to give time and score, Leitner often would not. Great broadcaster, didn't always give the time and score. So you're right on. When you think you're doing it uh, enough, give it some more. Well, you're right. You know, I was I happened to be listening to a Red Sox game a while back. I'm not sure what year it was. They were down in Baltimore. 
and I flipped it on, and Joe Castiglione, who is the best, one of the best that's ever done it, uh, he's been with the Red Sox since 1983. I flipped the game on, and it was a particularly long inning, John, and I think it was 20 minutes before Joe gave the score. Wow. And, uh, you know, that brings up an example I tell people often. Uh, just because it's on the air doesn't mean it's good or doesn't mean it's right. So if you're listening to Joe Castiglione in that in that instance, pretend you were a young a young broadcaster tuning in to hear how often to give time and score. And you hear Joe do that, you think, oh, I don't have to give it nearly as often as people say. No, you do, because even the people at the top of the industry, in any industry, are prone to mistakes. Yep. And the, there's a great book out there called The Art of Sportscasting by Tom Hedrick. <laughs> And almost every other page of that book, he harps on it. Give the time and score. You can't give it enough. John, I have the art of sportscasting. Uh, you can see me on video. I think this is an audio-only podcast. It's just out of my arm's reach. It's always close by. Great stuff. Another element of the uh, pyramid, John, is description. And boy, I'll tell you, you, you talk about being a storyteller. Description is one of the things that you have to be able to master. And I'll give an example. I was listening to an NFL playoff game, uh, I believe it was three or four years ago, driving in my car. It was the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers NFC playoff game. Kevin Harlan was doing the play-by-play. And I want to tell you, his level of descriptive detail was unlike anything I've ever heard before. You know, you watch him on TV and you get a sense of it. But, boy, you listen to him on the radio – Every aspect of descriptive detail is covered. And that's what we really have to strive for, isn't it? Two things. You're so, Kevin is the best. Two things he does. Uh, if I can only say one thing about description, it'll be this. The way he's able to execute that. One, he has a fabulous vocabulary, which again goes back to, to being well-read. But two, he's a word economist on radio. Mm. He does play-by-play in phrases rather than full sentences often by saying something in three words instead of six words he now has three more words that he can use for this great description that he provides so for play-by-play broadcasters think about that do your play-by-play in phrases rather than full sentences and it'll allow you time to include some Harlan-esque description without falling behind the action. And it's important to pinpoint where the ball is or the puck, right, John? Because, I mean, hey, in baseball, the the most common example, uh, when I'm doing a Lowell Spinners game, I see a ball fouled off into the stands. I don't just say it's fouled off. I say it's fouled to the right, it's fouled to the left, it's fouled into the third row on the third base side. When your listeners are listening on the radio, part of painting that vivid word picture is telling you where the ball is. Think of vertical and horizontal reference points and think of the crosshairs uh, in the site. I uh, I hate to say this, it's <laughs> in today's society, but think of the crosshairs on a, uh, I'll say a Nerf gun. Uh, but it's the crosshairs, you, you put what you, you want to target right in the crosshairs. Put the ball or the puck in the crosshairs. Let's use football as an example. Everybody uses the vertical reference points, the yard lines. Okay, the ball goes to the 45. Great. What about the horizontal reference points? Give me the crosshairs. It's at the 45 on the left hash. 
or on the right numbers. And you can do that for all sports. So put the ball in the crosshairs using vertical and horizontal reference points. And John, the most important thing really is to remember that you're telling a story. You have to explain to people, why does this matter? Who matters? Make it a story. What's at stake? There's always something at stake going on. And your audience needs to be reminded of that. To this day, John, I still give periodic consideration to changing the play-by-play -play pyramid so that it emphasizes storytelling, even over description. The reason is what you just said, let's say I'm listening to Mary Mac hockey. I'm in San Diego. I know nothing about the team or the conference. So on the surface, I'm not going to care. But if you turn your broadcast from a simple play-by-play -play narrative, which is time and score pinpointing the ball and description, into a story by, by character development, you know, the players and the coaches and, and what's at stake in this game, the plots and the subplots, now you can make me care, even though I don't otherwise have a vested interest. And for that reason, I'm always tempted because a large part of me believes that it might be accurate to say that a listener wants the story even more than they want the great description. The description means nothing without the context of the story. So even if you don't emphasize storylines and, and character development over description and pinpointing the ball, make them an equal at the very most. And if you don't do those things, the storytelling, you'll never broadcast at the top of the industry. John, another important thing is recapping the game for your audience. You have to recap. Uh, well, for me, I do it, try to do it every four to five minutes. And I think it's important to find logical places in the game to do recaps. For example, in baseball, every time the pitching coach goes out to the mound, I recap the game for my audience. You have to look for those logical places and tell the audience, hey, how did we get to this point? It's a logical extension of giving the score. It's a story. Tell us how we got to this point. Yeah, it's the same reason we give time and score regularly. People are always tuning in and out of the broadcast. It's so easy when you're on the air to think, oh, I said this 45 minutes ago. Well, your audience is has changed over multiple times since then. So you're exactly right. And I love that you use the pitching change or the visit to the mound. That never occurred to me. Calling baseball is a great place to, but it is. So I mentioned you give the time and score periodically. You don't have to give the, uh, how we got here, you know, the recap as often as you give time and score. Like you said, every five or six minutes of, of wristwatch time, you know, real time is sufficient. But think, what would the headline on the internet say about this game if it ended right now? So it can be a single sentence recap. Padres scored three in the first, they're up five, two in the eighth. Uh, it doesn't have to be a detailed recap, it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but it's invaluable for the people who are just tuning in. And uh, the other point that I wanted to make about the pyramid is using your voice correctly, using it as an instrument, staying away from screaming like a banshee. Now, well, I, I shared with you uh, in an earlier email about a game, high school game I did, a playoff game that went into triple overtime that the team I was broadcasting for scored with a tenth of a second left. And this is in my very early days of broadcasting. I must have screamed on and on for like three minutes. And I still have that tape up in my attic, and it's fun to go back and watch it. And that tells me what not to do. 
But uh, you have to be able to be in control of your voice. That includes, you know, laying out, let the audience, uh, let the picture tell the story if you're doing a game on TV. But but how important is that? It's big. And we've all done it. I remember my dad listening to me do play-by-play once, and I got home and he told me I had screamed a big play. Uh, and he was right. So, uh, shoot, there was a great point. I was. I hope it was a great point I was going to make about, oh, the big play. So, when you're a play-by-play broadcaster, think of your voice as the transmission in a car. Third gear is where you're going to do most of your play-by-play. Sometimes when the action picks up in pace or importance, you can go up into fourth gear. Or on a truly big play, fifth gear. Maybe it's a, a dunk off a lob, or it's a, obviously a game winner would certainly qualify for fifth gear. But you're still not screaming. Uh, The best physical measurement of that is your VU meter. If you're going into the red, you're screaming. You should be able to uh, highlight a big play just by increasing your enthusiasm and your energy, but not by screaming. Uh, The other point I was going to make on that is a regular season game, say it's baseball, and game 30 the fifth gear of game 30 is not the same as fifth gear for game seven of the World Series. Right. So it's not only regulating yourself through the course of the game and having your third, fourth, and fifth gear, but where are you in the season? Because you don't want to use playoff energy in the middle of the season, even if you're in fourth or fifth gear. Well, John, we're going to wrap it up here in just a few moments, but uh, a couple of fun things that I noticed on the SDAA website that I wanted to get your uh, your answers to. I noticed that you once ate 18 glazed donuts at one <laughs> Now, how did you pull that off without uh, having a sugar emergency? It's easy. I was about 23 years old back when we could eat whatever we wanted to eat in whatever quantities. It was a contest. and uh, I ate 18. And John, my son, he's 14 now. He still brings this up probably once a month, the fact that I ate 18 straight. You know, Had I been able to, to switch from glazed to another flavor, I could have eaten another 18. I got tired of the flavor. Boy, don't we all have our own competitive eating stories. I, In my formative years, I once ate a 72-ounce steak in Texas. Oh, uh, I, are you kidding? Yeah, I was challenged <laughs> to do it. I was challenged to do it by my father and brother. And, you know, you don't back down from a challenge. And uh, I felt I felt it for two days afterwards. But I bet. How long was it before you ate steak again? <laughs> yeah, it was at least a week anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, when you proposed to your wife, Tony Gwynn was a part of that. Can you elaborate on that story? He was. I can even send you the audio if you you can include it into the podcast if you in post production. But I had I had put together a list of something or a script for Tony to read, and the guy that uh, a buddy of mine at the radio station was heading down to the stadium. I said, "Hey, will you give this to Tony and ask him if he'll read it into your tape recorder?" So he gave it to Tony. And hilarity ensued. So the media was gathered around Tony because it was a media veil, you know, before a game or whatever. And Tony Grin reads this script and he starts laughing. And he says, Doc, which is a name, a nickname on the air. John and Doc were interchanging. Doc, I'm not going to read this. This is bull, you know, BS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he went on for about a minute. He said, 
either she loves you or she don't. Amy, my, my now wife's name, says, Amy, you either love the man or you don't. If you love him, you marry him. If you don't, <laughs> kick his ass to the curb. All right. Uh, he says, uh, good luck, John. Good luck, Amy. It was hilarious. And Tony Gwynn's high-pitched voice, and he was cackling throughout, and that signature cackle, it was better 10 times than what I had actually asked him to read. It was classic. Great stuff, John. Well, uh, we're, we're going to wrap it up here. Before we go, uh, let's talk about ways that people can find you and connect with you. You know, you've got, we've talked about the website, stwatalent.com. Uh, and uh, where else can people get a hold of you? Twitter? Or what, what yeah, else? Twitter and Instagram at stwatalent. All right, John. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's it's always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, it, it's been so much fun for me to be involved with STAA. And, and I know we'll, we'll talk again. Thanks again for taking some time. John, thank you. Props to you. You're well prepared. Uh, and I appreciate your support of STAA and your friendship with me over the years, man. You're a good one. Thank you, John. He's John Chelesnik. He is the CEO of Sportscasters Talent Agency of America. Join us next week. We'll have another edition of Airing It Out Files from Leahy's Locker Room. And thanks again for tuning in. Oh, that's pretty. Hey, Doc, come on now. You want me? Man, you are the doctor, man. Come on. You can come up with some things to say. I'm not going to read none of these, Amy, because you're... Dr. J Dr. Chelesnik wrote some things down here he says I should say to you on why you should marry him, but I'm not going to say him. Either you love him or you don't. Either it's a yes or a no. And if the man is a good man and you love this man, then that should be good enough. If you don't love this man, don't string him along. Give him the boot. Kick his ass out the door. Don't be messing around. I am not going to read this bullshit he got down here. This is bullshit. And Amy, I know John is not full of this much shit. And so, like I said, either you love the guy or you don't. And if he's a good man, a good man is hard to find. If he's a bad man, kick his ass out the door and move on. Good luck, Amy. Good luck, John. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.